Now, like you, I've got a cell phone that has this map and a GPS and it gives instructions. I mean, it connects to my car on this little screen and it's really nice. And one of the features I appreciate is that it posts on there what the speed limit is. Because isn't that important to go the speed limit, friends? Can I get an amen out there from all of you men and women? Yeah, we go the speed limit, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Um, <laughs> I was driving the speed limit according to my, uh, my phone, and behold, there's a sign that's 15 miles an hour under what my phone is saying. That can be really problematic. I want to be able to trust what my phone says, don't you? I mean, more than that, I want to trust what the Word of God says. I mean, we, we, had, we determined how we live based on what we know. And we want to know that we have good information. And that is certainly true with the Word of God. I mean, do you believe the Bible you have in your hand here this morning is indeed the Word of God, the very words of God? Or are they just merely the words of men? Are they good thoughts and happy stories and some sad to make sure you don't be bad? Or do we have within these pages the word of God? I would suggest to you that we do. And today we're going to rehearse three reasons why we can trust that what we have is indeed the word of God. This is one of those times where we do a little teaching. We're going to look at a lot of passages of what the Word of God says about the Word of God. Well, one thing we know is that God has revealed himself. We just sang a song about stars up in heaven. God indeed has revealed himself in many, many different ways. Now, when we talk about God revealing himself, we're talking about revelation which is God disclosing to man that which would otherwise be unknown concerning his person, his purpose, and his works. There are things about God that we would never know if he did not tell us. We would never know that God laughs if the Bible didn't tell us so. Yeah. So we know that God has revealed himself, and he has done that through basically two different ways. The first way is, is what we refer to as general revelation. And it is called general because it's accessible to everyone. It doesn't matter if you can read, if you have a local Christian bookstore in the area, whether or not Google delivers to your area. Google, I meant Amazon. Yeah, you know, big, big publisher out there. <laughs> But my friends, both of those are true. And so general revelation involves a number of things. First and foremost, creation. Creation is God's way of saying, get to know me. Yes, I am out there. Because there is stuff out there, you know that I am out there. Now, creation is talked about in Psalm chapter 19, this beautiful, beautiful psalm. We won't read the whole thing, but in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4, we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, 
and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. All of creation testifies that there is a God, that he is a powerful God, that he is a good God. So many things that we can know about God through creation. Paul talks about that in a similar way. We've just looked at 19.1 of Psalms. We're going to look at 119 of Romans. We're actually going to start in verse 18. For the wrath of God, listen carefully, is revealed. How? From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now note carefully here. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There is no one that will stand before God and say, I did not know. I didn't know there was a God. I didn't know there was a right and a wrong. I didn't know that there was a good and there was an evil. God has revealed all of these things, which highlights the shortfall of general revelation. It is enough to tell us there is a God. Is it enough? It is certainly enough, this general revelation of looking outside and seeing the works of God to hold us accountable. But it is not enough to save. Nothing in the trees or in the clouds or in the stars or in the wind or in the skies, my friend, will tell us about Jesus. We need more than general revelation, which leads us to the second aspect of God's revelation. And that is special revelation. Think specifics. Specifics. God revealing himself. How does he do it? Through, perf- uh, through personal experiences. Think of providence, the providence of God. How many times have we experienced something? And I was standing there, and boom, there it was. You know, uh, my, my roommate in college, you know, he was just relentless, come and work all night at this place. I need a few bucks. Well, I don't, and I don't want to go. And he didn't walk away. He just kept bugging me over, come on, man, just be a good friend. Be a Christian and come with me, you know? Oh, my goodness. And so I went. And there she was. This young lady with brown hair and big eyes. Providence of God, my friends. God working in our life, showing us that he is good. Showing us that he cares for us. You see, part of God's revelation is even the weather. You know that the sunshine even falls down on the wicked. And so does the rain on the fields of the farmer who curses God. 
benevolence of God. The evidence is everywhere. So when we come to the Bible and we read that God so loves the world, well, yeah, I mean, have you not been paying attention? You know, you don't have to believe, be a believer to look out and be amazed by the colors that fall. I mean, come on, be honest. How many of you have just gone and take a ride? Just, you just drove through these country roads just to see the colors. I see that hand in the balcony, yeah. I mean, who hasn't done that? The goodness of God revealed in his creation. Another way that God has worked is through conscience. In Romans 2.15, Paul writes, Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So we come in with some software, and it tells us of some rights and some wrongs. It is always wrong to smack someone. Go ahead, clap hands, grab and grip, but don't slap people. And another thing, you don't throw babies up in the air. Listen to me, people. Stop throwing babies. Where were we? Uh, Conscience, yes. (laughs) So the law is written on our hearts. We know the difference between good and evil. And how do we know that? Because when evil is done to us, we agree with God and say it is wrong. God has given us a standard. The law written on our hearts. And our conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. See, that word conscience is a scale. <laughs> it's a scale. It's one of those old-timey scales. You know, you got to put some weight over here to measure something else. And we weigh our actions by what we know to be right and wrong. It is wrong to slap people. It is wrong to throw babies in the air. We do not do that, people. I don't hear any amens. <laughs> There are things that we, we don't take that which does not belong to us. And our conscience produces something that we call guilt and shame. Anybody never experienced shame in this room? It's universal. Put that hand down, Bill. Come on now. So let's talk about special revelation. Will we get specific? Personal experiences, miracles that God has done. He reveals his attributes, his power and his goodness. Healing, raising the dead, turning water into wine. One of the most uh, amazing of special revelation is the life of Jesus on earth. God sent his son. You want to know what I'm like? Look at him. Listen to his words. See what he does. Watch his compassion. See his love. See how he responds to sin. Yeah. But ultimately, my friends, we have the scriptures. Am I hearing voices? (laughs) Again? Well, my friends, we can be sure that we have the word of God. And you know why? You know why we can be confident that what we have is indeed the word of God? Well, we can be sure that what we have is the word of God because of the process in which the word of God was recorded. 
the very process, and the, uh, this is theologically referred to as inspiration. Inspiration. Now, why is it called that? Well, specifically because of 2 Timothy 3.16. Our definition of inspiration is that work of the Holy Spirit in guiding human authors to compose and record through their personalities God's selected message without error and in the words of the original documents. Hmm. God using a man like Paul or Peter or James or John. All of these authors of, how about Moses for heaven's sakes, the prophets. See, take a look with me, if you will, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 16. You want to do an interesting study in the Bible? Go through the New Testament books and look up all the 316s. You know, here's another one of these 316s. I am uncertain if this was the providence of God in the numbering of these things. Originally, the Bible didn't have verses. You know, somebody went through and put all of these divisions in the Bible so that we could reference them easily. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God. And so that tells us the process. This is the process of inspiration. Now, the downside of that word is we use the word inspiration, you know, during football game. Boy, he played an inspired game, didn't he? He, was, he heard about that wounded boy who had his toes cut off, and now he played especially. He was, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about highly motivated men. We're talking about the process in which the Spirit of God worked in these men's lives to record accurately in their own personalities. Do you ever notice reading the Bible that writers have personalities? Like the Apostle Paul is just one run-on sentence after another. Paul gets excited, continues, and just goes and goes and goes and goes. Like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 to 14, one sentence. <laughs> That's a lot of verses for one sentence. And so God breathed out these things. The Greek word is theopneustos. You can hear the thea, that means God, theos. Epneustos is connected to pneumonia, breathing. And you will notice that what God has breathed out is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, Peter talks about the same thing in 2 Peter 1.21. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But notice carefully, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit's. And so this is just another way to talk about inspiration, carried along. That's the picture of the wind filling the sails of a ship and moving. Now this is not, this is not suddenly becoming a robot and writing these things and then waking up. That's not what we're talking about here. 
We're, we're not talking about the Spirit of God and Paul writing it down. Wait, 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 what'd you say? Let me get that again. This is the Spirit of God working in a very unique way, my friends. Moving them along to record God's words accurately. It is the doctrine of inspiration. How do we know that this is the Word of God? Well, you know what? The Word of God tells us. And in reading it, we notice this isn't like some novel, is it? There's something about this book. The history of this book. And my friends, if that wasn't enough to tell us, man, this is indeed the word of God. How about this? The process in which it was copied. People saw this book. I mean, think about this. Paul writes a letter. He sends it off to a church. They mail it off to some other church. It gets passed around. And then one day somebody notices, this thing's getting pretty worn out. We should make a copy of that. Oh, that's where things get dangerous. You know how the Lord's Prayer, if you sing it, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, you know at the end, you know, for thine is the... That ain't in the Bible anywhere. Now, if you have a King James Bible, you'll find it there. But you'll also find a little note that says the same part of the scriptures. You know what that is? Some guy who's copying it, who's reading this, who's being overwhelmed by it, and makes a little note. <laughs> so the next guy gets that. He's like, what am I supposed to do with that? You know? But let me tell you the process. You see, when they made a copy... I mean, this wasn't, hey, who wants to copy the scripture today? These were, these were men of God who were, this was their business. And what they would do is they would count how many letters, how many paragraphs throughout the whole letter, and then they would go back and find the very middle word and the very middle letter. And so what they would do is they would look at this copy and they would find the center of it and if anything was different, if two letters were touching, they'd just burn it. They would not put up with anything that could lead to error. These scribes, it was astounding the work that they did. Middle paragraph, middle word and letter. They had to correspond to the original document. And so when we talk about God preserving and protecting his word, this was one of the ways that God did it providentially. And so we know how it came to be inspiration, but we know the process in which it was copied and how documents would just be destroyed for any error at all. Oh no, we're not going to have that. Hmm. Now you know that uh, even the writers of scripture recognized that they were writing scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says, look, you consider yourself a Christian that you know that what I am writing is the command of the Lord. Paul knew that the spirit of God was, this was not some lucky guess or somebody later on said, you know what, this is pretty good. Let's put this in a Bible. The word Bible means book. <laughs> Or scroll, yeah. Hmm. So, so yeah, this, this is recognized 
early on as well. This wasn't, you know, a few hundred years later, church history determined, you know what, we need a manual. Let's, let's, uh, let's call it the word of God. No, this was happening while it was happening. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we read the word, thus says the Lord. It shows up 422 times. 422 times. People knew these were the words of God that we are recording. Even in the New Testament, writers recognized that they were writing Scripture. Again, we talked about Paul. But you know that Peter recognized Paul's writings as Scripture? Take a look in 2 Peter chapter 3, 16. There's another one of those 316s. I'm telling you, they matter. 2 Peter 3.16. We'll start in 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> Can I get an amen out there? Uh, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Now, notice what Peter says here. As they do the other scriptures. The apostle Peter saw Paul's writing as scripture and considered them to be so just as much as the Old Testament this indeed is the word of God. So Peter, Peter recognized here in the scriptures that Paul's writing were scripture. Recognized early on, this is important to understand. This wasn't some group of people that got together and put this together. My friends, Paul, Paul, in 1 Timothy 5.18, calls Luke's gospel scripture. He quotes from it and calls it the word of God. Look at this. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Well, you say the first part there, that's, uh, that's right out of the Old Testament. It is quoted exactly like this differently by Luke. And the laborer deserves his wages. Paul looks at Luke's gospel scripture, recognizing these things, my friend, recognizing. So the question is then, if we have the word of God, why do we have so many different translations? I mean, are some translations not the word of God? Well, let's understand translations first before we make such a discovery. First and foremost, why do we have translations? I'm thinking that there's probably two people, oh, three, who know Greek. Raise your hand. <laughs> I see that hand on the sound booth. Melanie and Bill and I, anybody else? New Testament is written in Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. Old Testament's all Hebrew, my friends. Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. Wait a minute, it's the Old Testament that has some Aramaic. New Testament is all Greek. Well, it's Greek to me anyway. Yeah. So, friends, where would you be? Imagine the hill you would need to climb in order to read the Word of God if there were no translations. And so that makes sense. Bible's originally written in other languages, and there, there was a need for an English translation 
And my friends, a lot of time passed before they came up with one. In July of 1604, King James I of England appointed an, approx an approximately 50 of the best Bible scholars and linguists of his day to the task of translating the, a new version of the Bible into English. The work took seven years and upon completion soon became the standard Bible for English-speaking Protestants up until 1980-something or other. King James was the Bible of my church, of my family. It was the, I led someone to faith in Christ. I was, you've got to have the King James, man. Well, it's an important translation. First and foremost, it was done by very, very, very intense scholars, 50 of the best. Yeah. In the preface of the very first edition of the King James, the translators st uh, stated that it was not their purpose to make a new translation, but to make a good one better. They wanted to make the word of God more and more known to the people. Before the King James Version, Bibles were not readily available. Think of it. Churches who had no Bibles. See how important a translation is? Oh, welcome to the kingdom. Let's uh, open our Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews in Hebrew. <laughs> hey, Hebrew. Yeah, let's look at Moses in Hebrew. You don't want to learn Hebrew. I did quite well in studying Hebrew. I don't want to do this in Hebrew. It's, a, it's, a, it's very different than English. Very different. Greek, very many similarities. We need translations. And the amazing thing about this translation, it lasted for centuries. It lasted for centuries. The authorized version, or King James Version, has been the standard English translation in English-speaking Protestants for almost 400 years. Imagine, no change. But why should we change? Well, it wasn't perfect. Hmm. And do you know why it needed to be changed and why we needed more translations? Because the English language changed. You know, if you grew up on the King James Version, you were probably a pretty good reader. Well, you'd have to be. <laughs> you know, because all of the English was from 1600. You know, a lot of these and thous and those and thems. And <laughs> I don't think there were any thems, but, you know, the knowest and... Uh, lovest thou me, and you know, it was, it was a difficult read. But also some of the vocabulary was difficult. You know, in, uh, in say, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by this conversation. Well, the word conversation for you and I today simply means to sit down and talk about it. But that's exactly the opposite of what Peter is talking about. He's talking about a lifestyle, the way that one lives. And so Peter is saying they're going to be convinced by the way you live. Not the words coming out of your mouth. Wow, that, is that ever true or not? Absolutely. 
there's also the issue of varying philosophies. Why do we have so many translations? Well, because there are different philosophies. And it is essential that you understand this. We've done this before and we will do it again because there are new people with us and we want to make sure everyone is reminded and clear on all of these translations. One of the philosophies is formal equivalence. The key word there, my friends, is literal. We want to go word for word. I have uh, on my computer uh, interlinear Bibles, you know, which is an interesting and helpful tool at times, you know. Uh, you have the Greek word and exactly what it means in English underneath it, you know. I mean, wow, talk about accurate. How great is that? Who wouldn't want that? Well, it'd be tough reading a book that way, you know, with all that stuff in between. And that's basically what we're talking about. How do we make this as literal to what the Greek or the Hebrew says as we can? Now, the problem with that is these languages are different than English. So adjustments have to be made there, and it can come across as awfully wooden and tough to read. But that's, a, that's a, a, certainly a philosophy, and it's a good one. You know, the New American Standard Bible, the ESV, at which we use on Sunday mornings, or I do anyway, you know, that, that fits the more literal uh, philosophy. The main advantage of this approach is that it gives you a more accurate word-for-word -word correspondence of the original text. This makes wor uh, word studies, you know, what is, what is, how is the word, you know, uh, I don't know, happy or faithful used in the book of John? Or how is the book of love used by the author John? Well, if you don't know that the word love is in the original text and where it is, it's hard to do word studies, you know? So that makes them quite simple if you're in a literal translation. Yeah. Word studies are tracing a particular word's usage throughout the Bible more straightforward. Um, <coughs> straightforward. The drawback, of course, as I mentioned, is it can be fairly wooden. You know, again, that moving from one language to the next. That, that uh, has brought about a second philosophy, which is dynamic equivalence, and the key word here is thought for thought. We really want to understand what was being said, and then we can put that thought into English. Now, you can see a, a potential gain for this. Oh, this is going to be smooth and easy to understand. Uh, the potential danger is, is you're actually moving away from the literal words of God. So, so there's a struggle there. The NIV is a good example of this. Maybe some of you have the NIV. The NIV was, uh, was actually translated in, uh, at, at a seventh grade reading level. They kept the vocabulary down. They made it simple. Now, you can tell that that would be greatly valued. But again, there's some downsides. That's why we talk about this. So you know what tool to use. You know, I have a drawer full of screwdrivers. And none of them are the same. Some of them are really long, some short, some really big, some very small. You know, similar but different. But you've got to use them, use the right tool and the right circumstance. And then finally, there is another philosophy which, 
which gets really risky, and it's called a paraphrase. A paraphrase is the converting of the original text, or for the most uh, paraphrase, you know, uh, putting it in your own words. Well, you know what John was talking about is like flower. <laughs> I mean, you start really moving away from the literal here. It's interesting reading. It's very easy to read. Who was the guy that did this originally? I can't think of it. The living, the, what? Phillips. Yeah, J.B. Phillips. J.B. Phillips. You know, and, he, and here's a philosophy that, you know, can be frightening. I mean, how far away from the literal can we get and still call it the Bible, right? You know, so, but I'll tell you, if you're, if you're reading large portions of Scripture, you know, moving to the dynamic or the paraphrase makes it a little easier. Now, th this guy's a scholar, not just, you know, he wasn't some soccer dad who said, you know what we need... <laughs> So, you know, it's not as terrible as one thinks, but oftentimes this kind of translation can be very approachable for pleasure reading, you know, just to sit down. I want to read that story of Joseph again. You know, this, is, this, this plows through really well. So, so lots of different philosophies. But, but the key point here is, my friends, we have the Word of God we, we, in this part of church history, have a glut of Bibles. We have so much Bible information. I mean, through, through most of the centuries, for a church to get a hold of a Bible was an astounding feat. I mean, communities... Hoping, saving, scrapping, writing, you know, just longing to get a hold of a copy of the scriptures. And friends, you probably have shelves full of them. I know I do. But the point isn't, yay, the point is, what are we doing with it? What are we doing with the word of God? God has revealed his word to us so that we might know him and know how we ought to live in order to please him. The Bible was not given to us to satisfy our curiosity, to look good in public by carrying it around. It's supposed to read it. That's why it's on, uh, in a book. We need to know the word of God. We need to hide it in our hearts. Read it. Memorize it. Obey it. I had a conversation with Melanie. A while ago, we did a little challenge on memorizing Psalm 1. Have you memorized Psalm 1? Anybody? I'm not going to ask you to stand up and recite it. It's okay. Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Who else? Well, there's three of us. It's okay. Memorize Psalm 1. That's my challenge. The subject of Psalm 1 is the word of God. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in his season. 
His leaf will not wither, and whatsoever he does will prosper. You see the connection to the word of God here, my friends? Hide that stuff in your heart. First, that's, uh, first Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is a great place to start. Psalm 1 is just one of those things you learn early on in Sunday school. It's a very important truth. How about pick your own? See what the Spirit of God leads you to do, but start hiding the Word of God in your heart. Partner up with someone, a spouse, a friend. I was going to say your spouse's friend. I don't know. You know, just connect with a believer and get the Word of God in your heart. And then finally, do it. I mean, let's start by reading. If you haven't read your Bible in seven days, that's not good. Get your Bible out. You know, it's not a competition. It's not a, the, the way to get to heaven is read your Bible every day. But I'll tell you what, you want to grow up in this world. You want to, you want to become more like Christ. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to guide us, to change our minds. Get the Word of God in your hearts. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name here today. In the decisions now that we are forming in our head to determine to obey you, to study your word, to know it, to internalize it and to live it out. I know it's a wrestling match right now. For even as I pray, plans are being made for the afternoon, reminding ourselves to grab that before we get out. Oh, Spirit of God, work mightily in our hearts and minds even now. Help us, God, to overcome the temptation to just walk away. God, take away our sleep until we are right with you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.